Amen. So I don't know about you, but I remember when I was first dating Michaela, I wanted to impress her. And uh, I'm sure if you think back to the first time you maybe met a significant other, or maybe were trying to impress a friend or, or a, a coworker or during an interview, you know, you could try really, really hard to do that. Well, I have a miracle story for you, because I don't know about you, but I remember one time I was playing golf, and I was playing golf with Michaela, and we thought this would be a really fun date to do, so I bring her out into the greens and and she's at a place where she's really close to the hole that she needs to get into but just far enough that it's going to be tricky there's a mound in front of her ball in the hole and where it needs to get into so I go up to my my then girlfriend and I have my ball in the same area and I I tell her what you want to do is you want to take this pitching wedge right here and you kind of want to butt up to it a little bit and you just swing it back just nice and easy and just let it go and follow through so I said let me just show you on this one and I just go like this and and then the ball plops in the air. And by God's grace and mercy and miracle, I see a miracle happen. And the ball literally plops right into the hole. And I go, just like that. That's just what you want to do. And in my head, I'm like, oh my goodness, you are real, God. Thank you. Because, of course, I got to look good in front of my then-girlfriend, who would then be my wife. But let me be honest with you guys. Moments like that don't happen too often. And if anything, that might be my only time of success when I try to impress somebody. Usually what ends up happening when I try to impress somebody is uh, egg ends up on my face. Any of, any of you feel that way? I know I oftentimes do. Well, today's story in Jonah, I think what we end up seeing here is a little bit of egg on Jonah's face. But I think there's a lot for us to be able to understand and hopefully reapply into our own lives. So I'm very look, excited to read the scripture readings that we have for today. But I do want to warn you. I'm so happy to know that some of you have been reading ahead. And uh, one of you, for instance, called me last week to tell me that you were reading through Jonah and you, did, you forgot how quickly the book ends. Because you'll notice today that the book just kind of drops off of a cliff. And uh, I think there's good reason for that. So you'll notice that today. But we're going to be in chapter 4. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open up to Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to read one verse before that, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, because it'll help us understand 4. So that is a verse that we read last week. You'll notice, though, that in chapter 3, there's 10 verses, and in chapter 4, there's also 10 verses. And I think these verses are incredibly important to understanding how this book comes to a close. So reading at verse 10 of chapter 3, it says this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, what did God do? He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
So this is a portion of the text that we discussed last week, and if you would remember correctly from last week, what ended up happening is is Jonah finally got his act together. He went to the land of Nineveh, and he spoke the message that God had called him originally to speak. And chapter 3 kind of starts off the way chapter 1 should have begun, but it didn't. But obviously Jonah didn't because he ran from God. And in chapter 3, we see in some ways what should have happened. How Jonah should have responded to the word of the Lord that came to him. And from this event, from Jonah speaking out God's truth to the people of Nineveh, instead of them getting upset at Jonah's message, which was in some ways a very harsh message, a message of doom and gloom, they decided, you know what, we are going to repent as a nation and we are going to allow this word that Jonah brings us to change the way that we behave. Because so often when we hear hard messages, we don't want to do that, right? We want to get defensive and fight back and think of every single justified reason on why we are in the right. But the nation of Nineveh repents. And then what happens in verse 10 is absolutely beautiful. It says that God relented from the destruction that was going to come onto the land of Nineveh. Now, I don't know about you, but I would call that the best of all possible outcomes, wouldn't you? I mean, if you have children or if you're in a relationship, you oftentimes know that there are times where you have to have card conversations at times, right? And you kind of hope to approach those in a way that hopefully everybody at the end of the conversation will be the better for it. But so often, right, our teenage versions of ourselves come out and we argue back, right? But this didn't happen. It was the best possible outcome. Jonah preaches the word, the people of Nineveh listen, they repent, and God heals them. And forgives them of their sin. This is what you want to happen. But take a look at Jonah's response to this situation in chapter 4 verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Huh? And he became angry. Okay. You're losing me here, Jonah. (laughs) He prayed to the Lord... Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. So here we learn what? The main reason why Jonah fled from God and tried to go to the land of Tarshish. I knew, I knew, God, that you are gracious and compassionate God. That you are slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than live. This sounds completely nuts, right? 
I mean, this guy has some screws loose in his head, I think. I mean, he's literally trying to put God on the dock, on charge, on in a defensive position because he considers God gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and who relents from sending calamity. That's his charge against God. Really? Really? What does this say about the person of Jonah? That Jonah rather, in my opinion, witness God's wrath than God's love and compassion. Not for his own life, but for somebody else. I'm just speculating there, but that's what I think I see. That Jonah rather witness God's wrath than God's compassion. And here's where I put the mirror up. Because you and I both can very plainly and clearly see how ridiculous it is for Jonah to be upset, to be angry towards God, and then to say the words that he spoke against God. But the truth is, is that many of us are not far off from how Jonah is behaving. Maybe we're not telling God the same thing with those words that Jonah used, but we're saying the same thing with how we feel and how we oftentimes think. Because here is the hard part that we need to witness in our own lives and take note of that some of us rather see certain people's demise and failure than we would see their success and redemption. There are people out there that we rather see harm brought to them than we would see redemption brought to them. And that is a very interesting concept, and I think it should hit all of us. I know it hits me. Because here's the thing. Oftentimes, Christians and people in general can be accused of being judgmental, right? And when I hear that, I actually want to correct that thought a little bit, because ironically, a lot of people will throw out the word, oh, you're judgmental. Oh, your Christians are judgmental. And they don't really understand what judgmentalism is, because they're judging the other person in a way as if they're immune to judgmentalism. You see what I'm saying here? So it's kind of a a sword that cuts both ways without them realizing it. That you can't really say that without making a judgment yourself. You see, I think that scripture actually teaches us that we need to be able to see something and judge it correctly off of the fruits that it bears. Okay? It's why I think... Jesus tried to explain this multiple times. That if a tree does not bear fruits, then is it a good tree? No. 
And that's so obvious for all of us, right? That if any of us at any time has ever tried to plant something in the ground, right? And it's spring up, and it's just there, but it's not serving its function. You go, ah, oh, man, this thing's not working right. And maybe it's not a plant. Maybe it's a lawnmower you bought or something that, that you purchased, and, and it's not working right. What do you say? This thing's not working right. This isn't a good product. This thing broke on me. It shouldn't have happened, right? We can actually do the same thing looking at the world around us, and that's actually okay, It's okay to acknowledge that there is bad behavior out there, that there are things that God condemns. We call this sin that creates harm to others and harm to God. Are you following me? And it's okay to say, that's evil. That's not right. That person sinned. But what's not okay, and where I think we become like Jonah, is we lose our hearts, and hear me well, of compassion and love. And that's where judgmentalism can actually live. That is when instead of you being a part of redeeming work in this world, you're part of condemning work in this world. That's why it really bothers me. And look, I understand. I do it sometimes too. Sometimes I do it unknowingly. But it does really bother me when I see especially public figures that, are, that claim the name of Christianity. And all they want to do is beat up the church. All they want to do is point out every single person that doesn't look like them. As if they are the perfect measure for all things that are holy and good. And I just go, man... Can't you just show a little bit of grace? But the truth is, church, we do this. When was the last time, and here's a hard question for you, when was the last time you actually prayed for somebody you disagreed with? When was the last time you actually prayed for somebody that you didn't like. And maybe you had good reasons not to like them. Maybe if you were to go to a court of law and put the whole entire situation on trial, you would win. But when was the last time you prayed for them? See, the thing is, we are much more comfortable with God's wrath as long as it's not us, right? In some ways, we want God's wrath, but as long as it's not us. And very seldom do we actually live in a way where we want to be a part of the redeeming work that God did in our own lives, but for the lives of others, right? And that is not good discipleship. That is not good Christianity. That is not reflective, in my opinion, of Jesus' heart, of God's heart, and of who he's calling us to be. You know, part of the principle of turning the other cheek isn't just, hey, I need to take abuse on. In fact, I don't think that is a part of it at all. God does not want people to stay in abusive relationships. That's my belief. We need to be careful 
to not allow ourselves to receive harm in a way that just willingly allows people to harm us. But part of turning the other cheek is letting go of offense, right? And actually loving the individual who's creating the offense. This is hard. I don't always do this right. And Jonah sure, sure, it sure isn't doing it right either. He rather see God's wrath than God's compassion. And there's a few ways that we also do this too. The question I have for you is, do you enjoy seeing certain people's failures? Are you okay? This is a hard one, guys. Are you okay with injustices that do not apply to you? Oof. Are you okay with injustices that do not apply to you? This one's going to feel cliche, but it isn't. So listen to me well when I say this next one. Are you okay with people going to hell? Look, at the end of the day, I'm not responsible, so to speak, in someone's decision to accept or reject the Lord. But I do take on a responsibility to be a light to those around me. And if all I'm doing is hiding that light and never sharing it with somebody else, I, in some ways, do not believe in the message. I do not believe in the power that that has, the love and compassion that it can share, that I can share with those that are hungry and needing the light that is in me, the light that comes from Christ. And the reality is, is that there is a real heaven and there is also a real hell. Hell is the op- absence of God's presence. It is a place that none of us want to go because if God is known for being good, loving, compassionate, just, kind, then what happens when you take out those qualities? Well, what are you left with? You're left with injustice, rage, destruction, and so on and so forth. And if you really are on board with this whole thing that we call the gospel, then you also need to be on board with being a light to somebody. Be a light, church. Be a light to somebody. Because there are people out there that the only opportunity they're going to have in seeing a light is going to be through you. Think about that. You may be, for some, the only light that a person gets to see because you know that they're not seeing it on television. You know that they're usually not seeing it when they're walking through this world, but they can see it through you. Are you a person who rather witnesses God's wrath than God's love and compassion? I anticipate that what I'm saying right now convicts you. And to be honest with you, I have found this whole series incredibly convicting. When I was planning for this series, I planned for it months ago, 
I was thinking, oh boy, this is just going to be a swell series right before Easter. It's going to be fun. We're going to be talking about Jonah and the whale and all that stuff or the big fish, right? And it's just going to be a fun time. And then, of course, as I'm actually wrestling with God's word, I'm like, oh, this isn't just meant to be a fun time. This is meant for us to do church, right? We've been saying that often when we come to church, it feels like the last couple of months. We just had church today, right? A few of you have come up to me and told me that. Here's the thing, church. Conviction is a good thing. Let me explain. On the screen, we'll put up a Bible verse for you. It comes out of the book of Corinthians. It should be 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is probably the closest church out of all the letters that are circulated that are, is probably like America, where there's just a lot of problems at, in this church. And we got a lot of problems, guys, too. So Paul, writing this letter to him, to, to this church, he writes this in chapter 7, verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, because Paul obviously sent a letter that we don't have that convicted the people. Conviction is a form of sorrow. It caused the people to feel this sense of grief. What does Paul say? I do not regret it. That's an interesting statement because I think we live in a day and an age where we're so careful with not creating offense, right? Where we say the phrase, oh, I don't want to offend you. And there's nothing wrong with loving somebody in a way that you don't want to wrongly create offense in their life, right? Because we can do that and we don't always know people's history. And because of that, we need to be in some ways mindful of the words that we're saying. But we've done it to an extreme, I think, to where it's like a free-for-all where we're just never wanting to confront people, you know? You know what I'm talking about. So Paul says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So what is Paul saying there? I, I felt sorry. At first, I felt sorry that I made you feel sorry. But and then I thought about it, and then I wasn't sorry anymore. <laughs> and this is the reason why. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry. So what's Paul saying here? I'm not happy that you felt bad. That doesn't bring me joy. I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to feel offended. But I do want you to feel those things if those things lead you to what? To repentance. What is repentance? It's a turning away from whatever sin you have in your life. So, for instance, if you are somebody that is quick-tempered, repenting from that is saying, God, I am going to now choose to not allow my temper to get away from me. So Paul is saying, I'm glad, I'm, I, I'm not happy that I made you sorry, but I am in the sense that your sorrow led to what? repentance for you became sorrowful as god intended so what does that tell us from scripture 
that there are things that God wants us to feel sorry for. There are good convictions that don't just come from other people, but come from whom? The Lord, from God. So what does that mean? Church, there's going to be times in our lives where we're going to feel yucky inside. Where we're going to feel feelings that we don't want to feel. Boy, I know this one very, very well. But let's continue reading. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So what is Paul saying? God actually wanted you to feel that way. And the harm really didn't come from us. It was an instrument that God was using. And for what purpose? Again, in verse 10, godly sorrow brings what? Repentance. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to underline verse 10 especially. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So there are two kinds of sorrows according to this scripture, right? One of them is... Godly, say it with me, sorrow. And the other one is worldly sorrow. So we have godly sorrow and we have worldly sorrow. Those are the two kinds of sorrows that we can typically feel and experience within our walk of faith. As we can experience godly sorrow and we can experience worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to us changing whatever actions and behaviors we've allowed ourselves to give into that lead us where? To sin. And worldly sorrows do what? Bring death. So godly sorrows are meant to transform us. They're meant to make us aware of our shortcomings. They're meant to help us in some ways go back to a good and healthy path. Our culture does not like any form of sorrows, let alone godly sorrows. But worldly sorrows do what? They lead to death. Now I think, church, if we're honest with ourselves, we've experienced a lot of both probably in our lives. But here's the beautiful thing about this verse. Here's the beautiful thing that God wants you to be able to see. Is that worldly sorrows are supposed to bring life. Or pardon me, godly sorrows are supposed to bring life. And there's supposed to be no regret. Pastor Kevin, why is it then that I know when God convicts me of something and I repent, I still feel that? Why is it that that happens? I ask myself that question all the time. And I still oftentimes struggle with those feelings. 
where I know God convicted me of something. Kevin, you, you, Pastor Kevin, you made a misstep there. That wasn't right. You need to, you need to, you need to find a, a place to repent for that. Okay, God. And then I, 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 I nail that sorrow into my own heart. You see, that's where I go wrong. And that's oftentimes where each of you go wrong as well. Is that if the godly sorrow led you to repentance, the work has been done. It's over. It's finished. It served its purpose. You know what I'm saying? It served its purpose. It produced what? Repentance in life. Now let it go. It's over with. It's done. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. It's why in scripture we see God oftentimes trying to encourage us and reminding us that as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103.12 says, and we'll put it on the screen, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That is what God does when it comes to our sin. Once we repent he forgives us and he puts it in a place that is so far away that we don't need to live in that regret anymore but boy do we like living in that regret if you've been forgiven you've been forgiven go ahead and tell your neighbor next door i next to you i am forgiven You do not need to hold on to that sorrow, church. And hear me well. It's not easy. It's not easy to let go of it at times. Because sometimes the enemy and other people like to do what? Maybe any of you have dogs that like to do that wonderful thing where we take the dog and go, Look at your accident! Look at you did that! You did that! And we, but we do it to ourselves so often, right? And we, our guilt grows and our guilt grows and our guilt grows. But does that form of guilt heal and help? No. What does it do? It, it causes us to feel like we're dying inside. That's worldly sorrow, church. And God does not want any of that. In fact, I would say God did not make any of that. Worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow condemns. It's ju judgmental. It's poisonous. Pray, though. Pray for godly sorrow in your life. Because the more godly sorrow you can find, the more godly sorrow that you can experience, well, what does that mean? The more that you can grow in closeness with God the Father. And I think that is so much of what God is trying to work in the hearts of Jonah with. Verse 4. After Jonah explains all the reasons why he is angry at God, the Lord replies to him and says in verse 4, Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, Is it right for you to be angry? Now, Jonah doesn't give God a response here. 
Because maybe deep down inside, Jonah knows, no, it's not right for me to be angry. But I'm going to be angry. And what happens in verse 5? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. Now, I don't know, but oftentimes traveling east in Scripture is a sign of leaving God, right? They traveled east of Eden, just an observation. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's almost like, I hope God changes his mind and destroys the thing, right? Or he's like that little kid who gets in trouble, right? And everybody else is having a fun time. And they deep down inside want to have a fun time, but they're so stubborn that they go, no, I don't want to have it. But they're wrestling with God there. And in verse 6, then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. So what is God doing? Even in the midst of Jonah being bad attitude, in, in accusatory to God, God does what? He makes a plant to give Jonah shade and comfort him. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Now, this is really interesting. Which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided, again, provided, right? A scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. There he is again, complaining. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. What a guy. (laughs) But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I have not concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's it. Story's over. Close the book of Jonah. That's all we get. But wow. There's more there that I think God wants us to see. And I think the reason why it ends so abruptly is because God is shining the mirror on all of us. You see... That worm and that leaf, in my opinion, was a reflection of God's heart in Jonah's heart in a single instance, all the while wrapping up what God did through Jonah in Nineveh. You see, God is the one that loves us, that provides for us, that tries to course correct, that tries to redeem but we so often are more comfortable in God's wrath, as long as it's for somebody else, than God's redemption. We want the redemption, but we don't want to extend the redemption to others. You see, 
Jonah is upset about God rescuing the people of Nineveh and complains. Jonah sits outside of the city because he can't stand it to be in a place transformed to goodness and watches from a distance. And God is doing what for Jonah in this moment? He's demonstrating the same patience and love to Jonah that he's trying to demonstrate over the land of Nineveh. God is not being cruel by taking Jonah's shade away, but he's almost in some ways showing Jonah what happens when the sin, like the worm, eats away at something good. He understands in his own life what happens when the goodness of God's covering is removed. But he can't see that for the lives of other people. So what's the message, church? God's grace is always available to us. And I chose the word us instead of you because we live within a you or a me mindset, right? Where you love it, I love it, when people say things like, God's grace is always there for you, buddy. But we don't always love it when we think of others. So what's the message of Jonah? Where, where do we go from here? Well, I think the simple message is this. God's grace is available to us. But it's also available to others. And we need to do our best to be able to share that grace with others. To love people the way that God loves people. To not run away from the ways that God has called us. To be his light to others. To be the kind of person that's willing to set aside our own preferences for the sake of God and his kingdom and the love that he wants to demonstrate to all people. Which means that it's less of us and it's more of him. And it's allowing God to be redeemer in our lives but also to be about his redeeming work for others. So church, we got a lot of work to do. And we can either run from that work, or we can either answer that work. Where are you going to be? Where are you going to be with all of this? Are you going to be a part of what God is doing here? Or are you going to hide from that? Because God I think, is at a point where he's, re, in some ways, calling his church once again, I think especially in America, to be about the simple things of our faith, about the gospel, about sharing the good news. And it's good news indeed. And it's going to be a time, I think, where it's less about all the programs, and it's more about what? The message, the redemption, the grace. And the only way I think we're going to get there is if we live it out ourselves. Amen? It's hard, guys. I get it. It's hard. But I'll tell you this. 
hard things that are from the Lord are worth it. And I don't think any of us will live with an ounce of regret to be a part of seeing and doing what God is doing in this world. I know I want to be a part of that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for conviction. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the ways that you minister to us. I pray, Lord, that if there is anybody here who feels a sense of conviction in their life, Lord, that they would be reminded that godly conviction leads to repentance, the kind of repentance that brings salvation, health, wholeness, healing in our lives, that leaves no regret. And I pray, Lord, that if you are ministering that way to anybody here, Lord, that they would be able to come to a place of experiencing that form of sorrow, the good godly sorrow. And Lord, I also pray for anybody here who, who has maybe felt a form of worldly sorrow in their lives. They've felt the regrets that have come, that they have not been able to shake away, the kind that feel like death into their hearts. I pray right now, Lord, that you would free those people of those feelings, that right now you would teach and give them the strength to say, no more. I will not allow this to wound me anymore. And Lord, that you would touch and heal those people. And Lord, that you would help me with that as well. Because so often, Father, I allow the enemy or I allow others to turn good conviction into worldly sorrow and death. Help us to do this in a way that expresses love, Father. Lord, help us to be people that don't just desire your wrath, but desire your love and your compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.